When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's pledge season on Slate Podcasts. If you love the Slate Culture Gab Fest, you can help support it by joining Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. We'll be talking about it more later in the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Toronto edition. <laughs> Greetings, polite, bilingual, multicultural, tolerant, nanny, statist friends. <laughs> we are your new American overlords. It's Wednesday, September 20th, 2017 on today's show. Justin Trudeau is arguably the leader of the free world, and as such, he is bearer of uh, the virtues of democracy and the Enlightenment. But far more critically, he's clickbait. What is it about the hunky boy king that generates memes? (laughs) And then Joni Mitchell is uh, a great, if not the greatest, singer-songwriter of both or any conceivable gender. But what is it about her that confounds critics? We ask a great critic we are lucky to have on hand, Slate's own Carl Wilson, whose essay on Joni Mitchell appears in the current issue of Book Forum. And then, Mudbound premiered at Sundance and was screened at this week's Toronto Film Festival. It is a violent, poignant, intense period epic about two families, one black, one white. We discuss this remarkable film with its director, Dee Reese. And finally, on Slate Plus, restaurant tricks and memoirist Jen Ag is a Toronto food star reputationally a bitch, and a very, very good friend of mine. We are extremely excited to talk to her about food and feminism and whatever other topics cross her mind. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. My microphone is sinking slowly. Yeah. (laughs) It's good because I get to talk and gaze at my navel at the same time. (laughs) I can Uh, hold it. It's fine. Hi, Hi, Steve. (laughs) Hey, Julia. And, of course, uh, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Steven. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's dig right in. All right. Stipulated, we are the Culture Gap Fest, which means we're mostly known for our gross ignorance when it comes to politics. Second, we're Americans, which means we feel mostly a gross and total indifference to the domestic politics of far-flung and exotic places like Canada. To wit, when we were going over whether we would do this uh, segment, we we said, Justin Trudeau, is he he president or prime minister? (laughs) Anyway, we don't care. Um, (laughs) 
Here is what we do know about him. He is a dreamy six foot two pile of cookie dough topped by enviably wavy hair, part Prince Hal, part audience favorite on The Bachelorette. And he has taken the internet by storm, generating very funny memes of the Ryan Gosling, hey girl variety. Julia, I will turn to you and say, what is it about Justin Trudeau, A, that generates the memes, but how is that integrated into a leadership style that's taking on you know, broader and deeper symbolic power in a Trumpian world? Obviously part of it is that he's like comically attractive, um, but it is engendered a set of conversations around uh, the Prime Minister in the august internal chat channels of Slate that is goofy and, uh, well, I will read you a little bit. I was trying to trying to ask my colleagues, what are the conversations we have about Justin Trudeau? We've had several convos here that end with either me or another employee saying that we eagerly await the Justin Trudeau sex scandal, or mm -hmm. we compare him to Macron. Oh, yes, we had such a good conversation about him and Macron's relative hotness. I feel like the Trudeau stuff was, as with most, thing, most things, the most fun before Trump. That was when it could be enjoyed most purely, when he named a gender equitable cabinet and when he popped out of a cave. <laughs> uh, and then there is one lone holdout who says, basically, I think he's a cynical narcissist who gets woke praise for progressive layups <laughs> and, and for deliberately being shirtless all the time. <laughs> I, th I think you found the room, as they say. <laughs> Uh, the person who holds that belief will be very gratified by that hearty applause. Um, but, you know, we talk so much in the United States about the social media president that we have. We have this Twitter leader monster, sorry about that, um, who is, you know, uh, been corrupting our entire country and endangering the safety of the world through the kind of corrosive conversation that's happening on Twitter, but in a way, you guys have a social media leader, too, and uh, that, I, I wonder if that isn't also uh, troubling in a less toxic way. What do you guys make of it? Yeah, you know, looking over all these memes and thinking about, I mean, obviously what we're limited to here is, as Americans who know very little about the way the country is being run, we're talking about his symbolic power on the internet, right? And uh, and I kept thinking about something, I think many people have said this, but I know one of my professors in college had this idea that the president in the U.S. is, is like the country's husband, <laughs> you know? <laughs> They've always been men, so we haven't yet known what it is to have the country's wife, but that, you know, that there's this kind of erotic domestic relationship that the populace has as a whole with this kind of symbolic figure of of the president. Um, and if that's true for us right now in the U.S., and this has been said by a lot of people too, we, we're kind of in an abusive relationship, right? Like we have this monster in the house who's completely unpredictable and quixotic and sort of potentially violent and frightening. And uh, And you guys, on the other hand, seem like the, the symbolic power of the of the figure in the office of prime minister is somehow balanced in between the bay right the woke bay kind of figure that's being invoked in those memes and well the the biggest applause that we got in the room just now was the idea that he's kind of a smoke and mirrors you know mm -hmm. that there's like a, there's an emptiness right. behind that facade uh, and I don't I don't know quite well, where else to go with that but yeah and, it, it and has to do with not quite knowing if the man in the house is the man you think he is I think it also has to do with an ambivalence about how and on, on what terms we lend authority and legitimacy to public figures, especially leaders, especially men, right? There's a crisis of masculinity. We used to have, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, a certain kind of 
you know, a voice of public authority that was the combination of the president and an anchor man, you know, kind of white, Protestant-derived, European-descended male with an oaky, vo authoritative voice. And at moments of public emergency or great public import, that was comforting in some way. And that's more of a sort of a father relationship. And when you look at the when you look at the evolution of media, you have FDR as a radio president. There was something about that patrician voice during a depression that was quite comforting. You have Reagan as a maestro of television um, in a way that no president had been before him, uh, and the theater of television. And at moments when public grief, for example, in the aftermath of the Challenger uh, uh, fiasco, when public grief needed to be expressed, Reagan was actually pretty good at it. I mean, I disapprove of virtually everything else about him, but he, as a performer of public legitimacy in a time of confusion, he was quite good. What I wonder is, woke Bay Justin Trudeau speaks somehow to a desire for masculine normativity absent masculine authority or gravitas, and how is that gonna respond when it's tested? And interestingly, a lot of its power derives from the you know antipodal contrast to Trump, uh, and yet, he, does he have the authority to really counterweight the U.S. that's spinning off its axis? I mean, it seems like that's probably a better question for the people in this room than for us. But, I, but you know, I, 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 I mean, but I mean it really in terms of pu public symbolism, the culture of it, rather than the I don't politics know, I guess of I would it. argue the the opposite that sort of both Trump and Trudeau are finding different ways to create that relationship with their audiences, and it's less through the broad, you know, kind of the single solitary authoritary broadcast, and more through these very loose, informal seeming touch points like they're just kayaking up to you all over the internet all the time like wanting to reach out to you individually both of them honestly I mean they're kind of more alike than you might think in in the way that they're omnipresent and, and like to seem off the cuff and the kind of performed off the cuffness that we now require honestly of all public figures I mean we expect it from celebrities we want them to like show us the pancakes they're making for their kids in the kitchen on their Instagrams um, we now also want it from our politicians and I I actually think for for both men, the question of how you square the off-the-cuffness mm -hmm. with the authority uh, holds. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and, and in a way, the reality TV origin sort of holds more for Trudeau than I had realized. It wasn't until I started researching him to talk about him on this show that I, I learned about this boxing match, which I guess everybody in Canada is more than familiar with. Uh, remind me of the guy he was boxing? Patrick Brazo, right. And so the, the idea that his political career, I didn't begin there, but that it sort of took off in a, in a very public way in a literal beatdown of another politician is very Trumpian in his way. And it seemed like he plotted and lied and wait, like lay and wait for, yeah. It's, it's easy. No, the descriptions of the boxing match to someone who really wasn't that familiar with the details are astonishing. I mean, the, the seriousness with which like Trudeau was able to take the opening flurry of haymakers, <laughs> and yet he found his legs and then his jab, and he was able to slowly work you know, his opponents. His endurance and hard work <laughs> propelled him through, Steve. <laughs> right, and the idea, the kind of unproblematized idea in interviews that he, he gave about it, that that was proof of his mettle mm -hmm. as a politician, right? It showed right. that he was a hard worker and that he was dedicated. And this raises a place I'd like us to go before we exit the segment, which is, you know, I mean, I was reading about the boxing match, I kept thinking, and I thought my country was stupid. <laughs> right? And there is a way in which Canada and the United States, if you look on the map, were right next to each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry. If you, 
<laughs> no, it, it, I'm sure I, the library is really glad they flew us up here to tell them that. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but there is this, there is a, let, let's, let's stipulate finally my last stipulation for the night, I promise, is that there's, that there's, a, there's, there's, there's a social psychology that goes on between the two countries that involves a yin and a yang, a kind of distribution of, of, of social psychological functions in a way. And when we have a nightmare president like Trump, there's a kind of directional shift, in, and, and Americans, speaking for myself at least, look to Canada longingly as the country of sensible shoes, you know, pragmatism, consensus politics, a degree of tolerance that you know, may have miles to go, but compared to the United States is really uh, remarkable. Um, and uh, when we have Obama, I think my sense is that it flips in a way, and Canada feels like maybe, how does Canada feel? Uh, do you look longingly at us when we have Barack Obama? <laughs> <laughs> You're fine. You'll be okay. Right. Right. So this is all about my own pathetic inner life and not about... Yes, you're nodding rather vigorously, ma'am. <laughs> uh, the point is, uh, Dana, just throw me any kind of a fucking lifeline right now. What, what? Well, here's a question I have. So basically, a bunch of people, when Trump began to seem like he was gaining traction in the election and we began to contemplate that he might actually... When, uh, although I only honestly rarely contemplated that until election day. Uh, yeah, but anyways, it seemed clear that something was working. There were a few pieces. I think Slate ran one of like, well, so how would folks on the left feel um, if like a kind of canny social media star from the left? Like, what if Kanye ran for president? Like, what if someone else who was like a good image maker, but who espoused liberal values instead of conservative ones. How would we feel about that? Basically, that experiment is already being conducted in mm-hmm. Canada because he employs all these flim-flam tactics, and yet the things that he chooses to say with the platform that he's uh, acquired for himself are about tolerance and inclusion and, you know, maybe let's not talk about the pipelines. But, um, it, like, the, the general baseline things he's using his flim-flammery to advance, at least from where we sit, look pretty great and that's that's the con that that's the future that seems uh interesting to contemplate from where we sit is you know how if this is the future of what politicking is how will we feel about it when it's applied towards evil and good like what you know is mm-hmm. there is there a way to deploy it well and i think probably it, it's a little too soon to say what he'll actually be able to achieve but uh it's that that's the question i have well, and then and this is a lot to get into, but another specter that his ascension raises is that of dynastic power, right? I mean, one of the big sort of marks against Hillary like, among people that hated her was that there was something dynastic about the Clintons and that she was just coming up because of her husband. Obviously, Justin Trudeau is, you know, crowned by his his father's prime ministership before him. So so to balance that as well with what seems to be this uh, this woke bay coming out with his boxing gloves on you know i mean those two things marry together in a way that's maybe a little bit disturbing as well the inherited power and the retail politician skill mm-hmm. right i'm still curious to know and we won't solve it in this segment which was now coming to a close is just what when you know when the some combination of the late night comedians and the general psyche of the public projects a set of images or expectations on a leader, they're empowering him to do X or disempowering and, and limiting him from doing X. And I'm just still very curious to know, and maybe our Canadian listeners or otherwise politically 
uh, literate ones can come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us, is he being limited or empowered and to do what or not do what? I'd be very curious to hear it. All right, moving on. Hi, guys. We're cutting into our Toronto show to let you know that it is Pledge Week on Slate Podcasts for Slate Plus. And here to discuss that back in the studio through the magic of time travel and zithers, we have Slate Plus Editorial Director Gabriel Roth. Hi, Gabe. Hey, Julia. Uh, Hi, Dana. Hi, Steve. This week is special because it's Pledge Week on Slate Podcasts. Uh, That means we here at Slate are asking podcast listeners who have not already joined Slate Plus to support the shows they love. Now, If the show that you love is this show, The Culture Gab Fest, there's a very special way you can sign up for Slate Plus uh, and help support The Culture Gab Fest. What is that way, Julia? You can use the code slate.com slash culture plus. Slate.com slash culture plus. Note, if you were a Slate Plus member, you would not be hearing this pledge drive right now. You would just be listening to content zipping along. That's one of the benefits you can get if you sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. However, there is also a contest. And that contest pits each Slate podcast against all of the other Slate podcasts. Dana, would you like for the Slate Culture Gap Fest to be victorious? We must prevail. <laughs> you know, I'm the least I'm the least competitive person on this podcast by far. We've talked about my resistance to games and sports of all kinds, but are you kidding me? We have to crush them all in the contest and get the most signups. So here's the thing. We've got this contest where each of the Slate podcast is trying to convert as many of its listeners to Slate Plus as possible. And we're going to weigh this out according to the average size of the audience, right? So the big juggernauts, the political gab fest, the oldest, biggest show, in pure numerical terms, maybe they'll they'll convert the most people. But in terms of the fierceness of your devotion, the avidity of your loyalty to the show, uh, you have a chance to represent for culture. One of the people who signs up using the code slate.com slash culture plus will be eligible to get uh, whatever the modern version is of our voice on your home answering machine. Do you have a friend perhaps or a spouse who might enjoy receiving a voicemail message in the dulcet tones of Dana Stevens? I what bet about, you do. What about Steve Metcalf reads a Robert Frost poem in his Robert Frost voice into your voicemail? <laughs> the shattered water made a misty din. He's giving the Great content waves. away for free. <laughs> Steve, that's, Steve, that's, Steve just, bottle it up. Just Clamp a little up. sample. Of the prize that you could be receiving uh, if you sign up for Slate Plus using that URL, again, slate.com slash culture plus. This has been a lot of japery, but uh, just a serious note, we're really counting on you guys to support Slate to help make us financially independent, to help us to do all the journalism that we do at a moment when journalism is incredibly important. So please, if you value this show, if you listen to us week in and week out, uh, it's 35 bucks for your first year, 50 bucks every year after. It's uh, an amount that uh, I hope you will consider giving to support this work and get benefits like not listening to segments like this. Slate.com slash Culture Plus. All right, back to the show. Thanks, guys. Let me welcome to the stage the wonderful Carl Wilson. Hi. Hi, guys. Hey, man. Welcome back. Thank you. You're a supreme EFOP. <laughs> a supreme, extreme friend of the program. I um, like the FOP is in that engram. That's my favorite part of it. <laughs> of the show? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> just, just, you know, the gathering of FOPs that we are. <laughs> yeah, the weekly gathering of FOPs. All right, in 1971, says critic Carl Wilson, Joni Mitchell kicked off one of those runs, a series of albums 
in the record guides with five stars attached to each one of the titles, one after the other over a period of what it was, whatever it was, seven or ten years, starting in the late 60s with Clouds, then Ladies of the Canyons, then of course Blue, one of the great, I mean, truly maybe the greatest record ever made. Court and Spark, For the Roses, on and on, through a more complex uh, kind of troubling her own sound with uh, Hissing of the Summer Lawns and Hegira. These albums are on par, obviously, with Blood on the Tracks or Harvest or really any piece of popular art ever made, arguably, many of them are. Uh, and yet her reputation feels uh, unsettled. Uh, is this because she's a woman, a Canadian, considered something of an infamous crank, or almost too much of a genius for her own good to discuss? I welcome Carl Wilson once more. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, Carl, that's a, a, a great essay you wrote, but before we dig in, uh, why don't you pick a Joni track? Yeah, I thought I would start, um, you know, Joni's not a Toronto artist, but very briefly she was, and in the way of all things Canadian, um, that allows us to claim her forever. Um, so I thought I would choose um, a song that she wrote in the mid-60s in the time that she was around here, um, an early song called Urge for Going. I'll ply the fire with kindling now I'll pull the blankets up to my chin I'll lock the vagrant winter out And I'll bolt my wandering in I'd like to call back summertime And have her stay for just another month or so but she's got the urge for going, so I guess she'll have to go. Thematically, I mean, I don't want to um, spend much of this time rebutting or complicating your Justin Trudeau segment, but um, I think one of the things to think about in terms of where Canadian artists begin from and where Canadian politics begin from, I would differ with the room in a lot of ways that there isn't a reaction, attraction, repulsion relationship with America um, that's always going on. And I think Toronto is particularly prey to that. Um, and our self-image is created kind of in contrast to that. My Trudeau footnote would be that we might have been outgrowing that, and Trudeau may be a kind of gossamer, um, out-of-date recollection to this kind of Canadian superiority complex. Mm. But anyway, so, that, so I've, my essay was based around this new biography of Joni um, called Reckless Daughter by David Yaffe, um, which I have mixed feelings about. One thing that you feel incredibly strongly reading it is um, the historical situation that she was in and the way that her rapid progress from rural Saskatchewan, from a very, very sort of remote post-war, um, kind of nothing culturally, to savvily getting to the late 60s where she was advancing the art of songwriting in ways that, that certainly no women of the decade were doing in quite the same way, and none of the men really either, um, is this trajectory that's really quite remarkable to contemplate. And, and you know, we're maybe now at the historical remove um, to, to think about it a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. and, and just to talk for a second about what's so utterly distinctive about what she does. Uh, there's something about the tuning of the guitar the chord progressions that she then you know iterates out off of those tunings and and therefore like the architecture of the song is unusual it's not something you hear any place else on top of which 
the melodies aren't only just sort of bewitching, they're also uh, uh, sophisticated and complex in ways that they couldn't otherwise be if the architecture beneath them weren't so, in its own weird way, recondite, but not at all unpleasant. I mean, immediately catchy tunes, but built out of something completely newfangled. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to deconstruct all the things that happened in that rapid period of growth, but one of the things, I think, is that um, she was a rock and roll teenager from a conservative family who basically had nothing but a few classical albums and some show tunes mm. in the house, all of which she really liked and carried with her, came into the folk scene kind of a bit as a joke, like it was a, it was a hobby while she was going to art school, um, and everything changed because she got pregnant and fled the West, basically, so her parents wouldn't know that she was pregnant, um, gave up the child and began writing songs. And this is, and the biography is interesting on this. It's disputable how this works, but one of the things is that she had childhood polio, um, as did Neil Young, by the way. Um, and she found a lot of guitar positions difficult um, in terms of physical strength. Another part of it is that she was, by her own admission at every phase in her life, a terrible student and didn't really have the patience or desire to be taught, particularly by these guys in the folk scene, how to play guitar. So she kind of rapidly found ways to adapt it to sounds that she wanted. And then I think out of that, just instinctively seeking sounds that appealed to her, she found these unconventional chord structures that reach back to jazz and reach back to classical and, and appeal to a sense of melody that she has that is kind of underrated, perhaps in the Bob Dylan era, and trying to bring all of those things together in this really instinctive and not particularly concerned about what anybody else thinks ways. And she says that when she started writing songs, you know, she started off as a bit of a imitator of Joan Baez style folk music and as soon as she was writing her own words she started to feel like her voice started to change and within a few years it had changed utterly and was and was like a, unlike anybody else's you know who I thought of when you're talking about her building her style her music songwriting style out of the the lack of training that she had was a was one of Julia's favorites Liz Fair who also has very strange chord structures and an odd way of constructing a song that she often says came about just simply because she hadn't come up boy style, you know, learning rhythm and blues and then piling these things on top of it that she, that she kind of came at it sideways and had to invent her own Yeah, style. I mean, the amount to which she wasn't a musician as a teenager is really... There aren't that many boys in the field that you can compare it to. Like, she just didn't do it at all. Mm. And then suddenly she was, That's and suddenly she was playing better than anybody. And there's this remarkable thing, which I realized at some point in the biography, where suddenly she's playing piano in the like late 60s, early 70s, and you're like, wait, the last I knew of her touching a piano was when she quit piano lessons angrily when she was eight, because her teacher hit her with a ruler, and there's never a mention of her ever touching a piano again, and suddenly she's playing this very fluid piano, and it's like, where did that come from? And every moment of her story feels very like that. I mean, and we could talk about, there are some ways in which that's also this kind of Canadian um, outsiderness that I think that she brings, which is a certain freedom from the entertainment industry, I think mm -hmm. that's very unlikely in, in an American context. And I think all of those 60s Canadian and early 70s Canadian singer-songwriters bring a little bit of that distance to the whole project and, and find voices that are a little unusual from, the, from that. 
You talk a little bit in your piece about this, but I'd be curious to hear you elaborate on the unsettled legacy. I mean, it, I, it, I hadn't quite thought about how much I hadn't thought about Joni Mitchell till I read your piece, and that makes sense. Like, she's how come she didn't get nominated for a Nobel? How come she... I mean, she's obviously... No one would ever say she's mediocre or bad. She's like a... I mean, to me, it's... She's, like, so frighteningly talented... I, I honestly find her somewhat terrifying. I feel like she's sitting there kind of like with her hand on like the third rail of life's ineluctable melancholy and just like daring you to grab it and just like, hang, come with me to the dark place. Like, and then meanwhile, she sings so like an angel that like I feel ashamed to sing along because it's like why, like, why would anyone try to sing? Like, I, it's really, I have to interrupt here and just say that's the first time in the history of this show that I've ever heard you place your hand on the third rail of life's ineluctable. I don't do it. That's why she terrifies me. <laughs> but she, she, she must I, have really fucked with your head, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, her robot body would conduct the electricity <laughs> extra hard. Yeah, yeah, nobody touched Julia. <laughs> Step away from Julia. Anyway, she's obviously quite a powerful artist, but um, but it is true that, that she she doesn't quite have that. You know, she's been a little bit betwixt and between, and it's hard to tell whether it's because of the gender thing or because she's grown into kind of an ornery old lady, uh, as she predicted. Um, but I'd be curious to hear you assess the dynamics there. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying, she sort of started talking about this before she even turned 30 and started predicting that she was going to be an ornery old lady. And I think that was her already reacting to the reactions that she was getting and maybe also being somebody a little more uncomfortable with fame than most celebrities. Although what is Bob Dylan if not an ornery old man? Yeah, but the, with the, we, the the difference is that we don't begrudge at him, right? Like that's that's the thing that feels all the way along from the sort of sexist condescension and sort of you know wolf eyes ogling that she got in the music press when she was in her twenties to the blame on her for daring to change stylistically and embrace jazz sounds and new sets of musicians and all the things that she did in the seventies to the like extreme reaction for her daring to be political or a little nasty-mouthed about her peers and all of that kind of thing as she got older. All of these things feel like, yes, these are parts of reasons for her reputation, but you can't help feel that they're all gendered, that, that again, we just don't treat any of those other sort of legends of that time the same way that we do her. And even though, no, as you say, nobody denies her greatness, nobody denies her influence, basically the kind of entire tradition of white women singer songwriter you know really stems directly from her and and you can't point anywhere else and nobody would deny it but you know one thing i've noticed with millennial audiences is that they talk constantly about stevie nicks and almost never about joni mitchell and i feel like that is the sense of like that got too complicated. There's not, you know, there's mm -hmm. not a simple icon to deal with. And it's a bit of a cliche to talk about Joni Mitchell because Lilith Fair Girls talked about Joni Mitchell in the 90s. But also, like, we don't know how to take the full measure of Joni Mitchell and we feel like we can take the measure of Stevie Nicks. And so it's a very mud muddy legacy in that way. I think you really saw that come out. Remember when she almost died a couple of years ago, right? She had a brain aneurysm or something. Yeah, she was in the hospital. Yeah. And uh and so people thought that that might be, you know, the last days of Joni Mitchell and there was this outpouring of of talk and love about her, but there was also especially because of the crank that she embodies. Um but because of that maybe. Yeah, there was a kind of stepping away from the 
the absolute lionization that you would expect of a figure like that if it really was true that she was on her last yeah, legs. I mean, I think there are some people whose reputation is already so, you sense that they're, that, you know, they're already deeded over to posterity, right? So we the living have nothing relevant to say about them. We understand that they've been handed over to the future and the future will make quite a lot of them and you don't feel this way with all due respect about Stevie Nicks. So it's safe to have a kind of friendly canonization, living canonization of her in a way that's mildly condescending, but you can't mildly condescend to Joni Mitchell. And, and I, there's this sense in which the second that we hear she's gone, which hopefully is many, 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 many years in the future, will suddenly be liberated unto our awe at what she's accomplished. Yeah, absolutely that's true, but it, you know, one thing is that I don't think that's many, many, many years in the future by all signs. She's, her health has been bad for quite a while, um, and that last scare was very severe, and she's apparently recovered to the point that she gets around in a wheelchair now, but that's the point two years later that she's recovered to. Um, so a, a little bit the way that we talked at the end of 2016 about, um, you know, on Slate we did this tribute to Stevie Wonder for the very purpose of, like, oh, let's right. do this so that he's not dead when we do it. Um, because we'd lost so many people in 2016 and thought about how they didn't hear the appreciation that they got. Um, I feel like that a little bit about Joni, and I'm glad this biography, flawed as it is, is out, because I feel like it'd be nice if we came around to celebrating that legacy before it was just all in obituaries. Yeah, beautifully said. So, um, uh, Blue is one of those records that I, I just don't think anybody's collection is complete without, uh, you know, uh, regardless of what the focus of your own particular interests or tastes happen to be. Most people have it. If they don't, they should get it. Give us, before before we close off here, give us a, a record that even Joni Mitchell fans like me might not have or might not know <laughs> that should be added. I sprung this on you by surprise, so you can... Um. My answer to this is is the most contrarian answer possible. Blue. Um, predictably. No. Buy a second copy of Blue. <laughs> yeah, you don't really know Blue. Yeah. Um, when I started taking records out of the public library, um, I think first I took out Court and Spark, and then I thought, oh, what's this one? And it was Mingus, um, which is probably her most demonized of classic period records, if we don't talk about the sort of synthesizer and political rant-dominated records, records of the mid-'80s. Um, and I, you know, coming to it innocent of why people would say that this folk singer shouldn't collaborate with the jazz great of the 20th century, um, just thought it was amazing. <laughs> um, so I do feel like it definitely takes more time to penetrate. But I think now that um, Hissing of Summer Lawns and Hajira um, are a little more canonized than they were um, in their time, then it's not as much of a stretch for people to get into Mingus. Um, with all of its touches on Joni's weird race fetishization um, elements, which definitely float through it, but just her as a jazz singer dealing with a bop-centered kind of harmonics, it's, it's really an incredible thing, with, and you have to listen to like 10-minute long songs. When Lester took him away I mean I went black and white And some so red Yeah, fantastic, Mingus. <laughs> All right, well, Carl Wilson, thank you so much for coming back on the show. You really... Thank you so much. <laughs> 
All right, well, our next guest, Dee Reese, is the director and co-writer of Mudbound and previously Pariah and HBO biopic of Bessie Smith. Please welcome to the stage. We are so pleased to have her, Dee Reese. Um, Mudbound is a period drama. It tells the stories of two families, the McCallan family and the Jackson family, one white, one black, uh, who who together relocate to a farm in the Deep South right around the time of the Second World War. Each family has a son who serves in the war, each of them courageously. Though returning to America, they are offered radically different homecomings. Netflix bought the film for a handsome son. At uh, Sundance, it's been screened at this week's Toronto Film Festival. Its cast includes Mary J. Blige, Carrie Mulligan, Garrett Hedlund, Jason Mitchell, uh, and uh, Jason Clark. Uh, before we dig in, why don't we uh, listen to and watch a clip? How long have you been back from overseas? Oh, just a couple of weeks. Much obliged, Miss Triple Banks. You give yourself a wonderful day. Take care. It's all right. It's just a car. It must have backfired. They say it stops eventually. You just come back. Come all the way back. My nightmare is always the same. I scream. But there's nothing coming now. This place, this law, we don't belong to them. So uh, I, I managed in the space of my short introduction two misrepresentations. The first is the Jackson family's already down in Mississippi. They don't relocate mm-hmm. there. But the, but the second one, which is sort of intentional, is this is a movie in the best possible way without a MacGuffin. It's really not built around... Uh, uh, you know, any one relationship or pairing. It's really not exclusively about any one point of view or, or plot line. It really is about uh, being a brother, being a soldier, being a mother, being an evil patriarch, being an American, being dispossessed, uh, having possession of land or wanting possession of land. Uh, it's just a remarkable achievement because it is so many things in the span of whatever it is, two plus hours. Was that daunting? I should say based on source material and novel. Uh, you went into this having read the novel and knowing you were making a large film with a lot of elements. I'm very curious to talk to you just as a film director mm-hmm. about what it's like to begin with a novel which is sprawling and large, it has epic scope, and to turn that into something that people can experience in 120 minutes, that just strikes me as remarkable. Wow, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the thing that attracted me to it was the multiple points of view, and the thing that I responded to in Hillary's writing was the internal monologue, so more than the dialogue, I was interested in like this kind of inner monologues each character would have in these inner churns, and then I even wrote some original monologue for Hap and Florence to kind of like give those characters more depth, but for me, like I lead, like I get attracted to relationships and characters, and so that's what I kind of go in with first, and I love that, you know, you could think this is a story about two brothers, and then we figure out, no, it's not about two brothers, and you think, okay, this could be a story about a marriage falling apart, and it's like, it's not just that, and then you think, oh, this is a story about sharecroppers and land 
landowners and like, no, it's not that. And then you think, oh, wait, it's about these two soldiers. So I think the big risk in this kind of material is that it can very easily become nobody's story. Mm-hmm. And so that, like yeah. that was, you know, a, a big, you know, edit, like the editing room. And we wanted this to be everybody's story. And I wanted to kind of capture this dark symbiosis, or you could even say like a parasitic relationship between these two families who are kind of locked in this system. And so with each kind of, you know, they're kind of like this dark mirror, mirror of each other in that, you know, the sons are linked by trauma. The mothers are linked by economic kind of disempowerment where their husbands are kind of making the financial decisions, but the wives are going around them. And then the, um, the, the, the two men, the two, you know, pay, you know, husbands are united by the sense of disinheritance. So I just That's like all the struggle. And I also wanted to show like poor whites. So you have like the Atwood family that are in the novel. It's important to show, you know, the McCallum's discomfort with them. So we see the middle class whites who are not comfortable with the poor whites and how they're all in the muck together. And the mud just becomes like a metaphor for race, for the system we're all stuck in. And I want to emphasize that at the center of all of it is you, right? Like to the extent mm-hmm. that there's coherence mm-hmm. and narrative tension uh, uh, throughout, that really is the the hand of a of a director and a and a confident mm-hmm. one, which is a remarkable achievement. But another question, just as someone who's amazed that someone can direct a movie, is you you have it on the page, <laughs> you know, really remar- that remarkably that you could at the end of such a chaotic and contingent process end up with something that's aesthetically unified and internally unified. But but among the miraculous things that you must have to do as a director. You've got it on the page, and let's see you even have it perfectly on the page. You are then handing it over to a team of artists who are autonomous artists in their own right. This is an extraordinary ensemble piece. Talk a little bit about your actors and the performances, and we have to talk about Mary J. Blige. Yeah, no, totally. So it's like seven actors and like, first of all, they're like generous because it's like no one's necessarily like the lead, but it was just important to get people that could really like stand and look at each other and like hold ground. And also like, you know, casting is like the biggest part of directing, but I think sometimes it gets undone if you don't have producers that back you up. And, you know, when making films, there's such a pressure to have, you know, you know, certain names that justify a budget and so you know with this film like we had big names but they but the producers also really just let me have it and like for example like with rob morgan as hap i was like you don't know rob morgan you've never heard of him in your life but he's going to be happy and he's going to be he's great so good and and so like things like that like like impacted and so you know i was really interested in having faces that felt like they were from the period so i cast a lot with look also so for um mary j blige like she has this like tear-shaped scar and so i wanted to film this perpetual tear and she's beautiful and like i needed someone for florence who could have this vulnerability and like this deeply empathic kind of sense of the world but then also be able to put up a wall and have this reserve and mary's character absolutely like like mary nails it like she really like goes inside and you know she stripped away the makeup no wig no anything and Florence doesn't says everything she thinks but you see all the time like this life in her eyes and like she was so far into character like even like some of her co-stars didn't know it was her like there's this young kid who's playing like her son who's sitting like from here to there to her and so we're doing scenes and like when I'm on set I call actors generally by the character's name and I slipped and said Mary and he's like wait a minute you're, you're Mary J. Blige? Wait, you're Mary J. Blige. Wait, no, 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 no. And so I was like, okay, Gilbert kid, like, now we gotta, like, go. But it's kind of funny because he was, like, holding forth before saying, oh, yes, I've done this, and next I'm doing that, and da da da. So it kind of, like, quietened a little bit down after that. But, um, and he was, like, silent for, like, the rest of the day. But, um, but, um, yeah, and then, um, like, Jason Clark plays Henry, and I was looking for a swaggering, salt of the earth kind of guy. And it had to have been a physically arduous shoot, too, right? I mean, there's lots of mud, there's lots of rain. Was it was it something that was 
it's kind of a hardship to get through in terms of the, the weeks on the set? It was horrible. It was bad. It was like, it was like, it was, um, so we shot out in plantation country in Louisiana. So though the film is, the story is set in Mississippi, we shot in Louisiana in this weird way. Like we scouted Mississippi, but they didn't like hold on to a lot of those historical places. Like they like raised them or got rid of them. And Louisiana, in this weird, like weirdly proudly, like had memorialized it, which maybe is good because they're like, I guess, not forgetting it. And so we shot at this old sugar plantation and we convinced a farmer, you know, to let us like ruin like one of their fields, like you just pay for the crop. And so, you know, we had to create our own mud with, with water trucks, but it was so hot as the middle of July. So the moment we'd like make mud, the sun would bake it and be like a crust. And so like, you know, by we, you know, we finished one direction, we had to bring back the water trucks, make it mud again. And, you know, instead of Greensman, we had Brownsman whose job was to just like make the mud and try to keep continuity and then <laughs> sweep out like tire tracks. So it was like a pain. And then there's like mosquitoes and it's buggy. And we shot in actual sharecropper cabins. Um, our production oh, so you didn't make those structures? They were there? Yes, they're pre-existing. So that was mm-hmm. the thing. Like They like preserved all those things. And so our production designer was David Bamba. And so we convinced the landowner to let us move the sharecropper cabins deeper into the field because where they originally sighted was too close to the road and too close you could see the levee. And so we moved them back into the field so where they weren't meant to be. So then he had to make them safe. And that meant transporting in and out. You're driving across land that's not meant to be driven on. So... And and we want, you know, the DP was Rachel Morris, and we wanted to have these 360 views, which means that, like, the production needed to be, like, very far away to to become a dot, which means that if you want to see Stan, you know, it's going to be a minute. So it was just, like, all around arduous, but I think that kind of informed the, the whole spirit of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it sounds like a sprawling production and a, and a sprawling theme. That sounds amazing. Yeah, totally. That and we actually... shot some, some days in Budapest, too. Sorry? Oh, so we shot some stuff in Budapest, too. For the war stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah for the war stuff, yeah. yeah. Well, that both of those actually kind of lead me to my other big point of curiosity about the movie, which has to do with the trajectory of your career. So your first feature film was Pariah, right? Mm-hmm. Pariah, yeah. great Thanks. movie. Thanks. It came out about six years ago. Thanks. And, uh, and Pariah, for those who haven't seen it, is an ultra, ultra low budget, right? Mm-hmm. It's under $500,000 Yeah, It's like 400-something K, and we never had all the money at the same time. Right. <laughs> we get it in trips, and we just... Kept going, yeah, yeah. right, and it's very local. It all takes place in Brooklyn. It's basically about one person. It's a it's a coming of age, coming out story. Mm-hmm. It's very intimate and small. And so I'm just curious. And then your two films after that are Bessie, which is a pretty big historical, mm-hmm. you know, period kind of biopic. And yeah. then suddenly you're doing this multi generational epic where you've got World War II tanks on set. And so yeah. obviously, in terms of scale, you moved up really fast. And I'm just curious, as a director, what was that like to go from ultra micro budget indie to suddenly, you know, get us a tank in Budapest? And Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just wanted to blow shit up, honestly. So it was good. <laughs> so, you know, it was cool. It was great. And it was, you know, it's, it was just to me, like, budget buys you, you know, budget buys you. In this case, budget usually buys you time, but this budget didn't really buy us time. We shot in 30 days. Budget can buy you equipment. Budget buys you crew. But budget doesn't buy you better performances. So for me, I just focus on the performances and, like, the relationships and, like, like composition and blocking. Like, all those kind of basic craft things don't change. So, you know... The budget is kind of irrelevant in a way, except that it gives you able to shoot in Budapest and use real tanks and have explosives. And, you know, we shot there because they kept all that old stuff. You know, same here. Like, whereas we'd have, like, two tanks if we tried to do it, you know, in the South. We could have, like, ten tanks in Budapest for the same price, which was a little scary. <laughs> and then, like, and also, like, the uh, special effects guys there were willing to do, like, you know, crazier stuff. Is like, you know, you're, you know, if you do black smoke, it's not supposed to be... 
you know, but so big, but they go, oh, no, no, no problem, no problem, you know? And so, like, you're, like, you're, like, you know, talking to a translator and hoping that what you're saying is translating and I'm just making a lot of hand motions and <laughs> it was great. And, um, and we had, like, um, they had, and so all the American soldiers are actually Hungarian soldiers, but, you know, you just kind of, like, make it work. You shot this in the summer of 2016, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was it like to make a movie on these themes and on the... Uh, parasitical relationship and the mud that we're all stuck in, as I think you put it at the beginning, uh, as Trump's campaign began to prosper and he became the nominee and then eventually, I mean, I guess you were done shooting by the time you won, but um, how much did you think about our present political moment in shaping the film and in shooting it? Well, like while we were shooting, like the the script first came to me in 2015 and it was kind of like, we were, we were all, I was already reeling from all these like police killings and so it was already in the air and so Trump's rise just felt like, oh, like we told you so, this is what we've been saying for the past five years with police killings, like this country, you know, has like this subconscious, you know, it's like, I think it's like a psychosis, like we haven't dealt with and like we all need therapy and like things have not changed. And so as we made the film, it just felt like, yeah, like, this is now. Like, it doesn't feel like a period piece. Like, I think, like, whether it was set in, like, 1940 or 2040, would be commenting on the moment. And I just felt like, like, there was one moment where, I forget which shooting it was. Like, there's so many shootings, but, the, but there was one where a police officer was, like, acquitted. And it was, like, the morning we were going to shoot the scene, like, with a little girl, like, aiming her stick at the, at the car. And I was so angry, and we were, we were supposed to scout a field for the Ronzel like, night chase. Like, we were shooting, like, that scene that day. And I was so angry, and it was, like, perfect to shoot those scenes, like, that day. So that, bang, you're dead. That just felt like me, just, like, my ultimate, like, you know, just um, expression. Because it, as just, like, a citizen, I don't know, I felt helpless. It felt like, what can we do? Like, we keep raising our hand and saying this is happening, but no one's listening. And, and so it just felt like that whole rise and maybe his election pulled the tablecloth off the thing that was already there and maybe, you know, I don't know, we as Americans will finally just acknowledge what's there. And in this film, like, I think you could read it on a deeper conceptual level like about inheritance and like you need to acknowledge what you've inherited or you acknowledge what you're passing on or it just continues in perpetuity. So, yeah, it was just like, it's like very, it was a good outlet. I'm just glad I was making something, you know, during the time because if I wasn't making something, that, I don't know what I'd be doing. That inheritance theme is so powerful in it, but I think the other way that I am excited for people to encounter it and read it is just as a World War II film. I mean, it's a World War II film that tracks both how dislocating the experience is, but comparatively the experience of a black and white soldier in a way where it feels like there's a lot of glamorizing films about World War II. There's a lot of, uh, you know, there's not a lot. There are a very few films about the black experience in World War II, but I haven't never seen one that plays them side by side in the way that your film does, and it, it was very powerful. Yeah, like I was hoping to get behind the mythology of the greatest generation and people like romanticize this period. And like, I think this is the period Trump is talking about when he says make America great again. But it's like that premise is flawed. Like there was never an again, you know, it's like when is the again? Like name one decade when it was great for everybody. You know, like I was I was like, why will no one ask him when is again? You know, I was like waiting for someone to, like journalists, like somebody ask him what again? But nobody ever did. But this film felt like, oh, this is the again. Like this is what he wants to get back to. But um, and, and, and showing that, you know, 
the vestiges of things that are keeping like this one family kind of locked in the place. And I just wanted to just in like both my grandfathers served in different wars. Like my paternal grandfather served in Korea and he was from this town called like Fayetteville, Tennessee. And when he came back, he tried to go to Chicago, you know, as part of that mi- migration pattern. Didn't work out in Chicago. And he ended up in Nashville, Tennessee. And then my mother's dad went to World War II and he was from this town called Ringgold, Louisiana. And so instead of coming back, they ended up going to, to Oakland. And my grandmother, who's, you know, who a lot of her kind of like spirit is there, like she was born in Faraday, Louisiana in 1925. And when the war came, it opened up like a lot of job opportunities because they started hiring black people for stuff they wouldn't, they ordinarily wouldn't. So she went to California too. And so it just like, for me, was a chance to kind of like interrogate my own personal history and tell those stories. And neither of my grandfathers got what they were supposed to get, you know, so like the GI Bill, like all that stuff, it didn't work that way for them. You know, I think my one granddad got a job at the post office and that was like, this is your gift, you know, like, like, like this is your, your, your big get. And my, my grandfather went to the Korean War, came back to be a janitor. And it was like, oh, be grateful to be a janitor at the electric company. Like, that's a good job. So I just want to kind of get behind that mythology and show how with equal effort, with equal, you know, capability, like there's this double standard and like these two families are kind of pitted against that. Yeah. Uh, well, Mudbound is an extraordinary film. Congratulations on its huge success, which is uh, only going to increase as we go forward but uh, d reese thank you so much for coming on the show this was thanks for having me all right well now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse dan no what do you have extra long wind up in honor of a live show very long wind up to the last syllable there i can go much longer uh okay so i as as usual when we come to a, a another place, another city, especially a foreign country, I like to endorse something that has something to do with that country. But then the question becomes, how can I endorse something that every single person doesn't already know and just not be bringing coals to Newcastle kind of thing? And so I hope that not everyone in Canada knows about this. But even if y'all do, the whole world doesn't, and and they should. So this kind of brings together my own personal love and my current project with, um, with learning about Canada. So in 1964... Um, Buster Keaton, who I'm writing a book on right now and who's sort of one of my heroes, was 69 years old and, uh, and he was only a year and a half or so away from the, from early 1966 when he would die. And he made his last film in Canada. It was with the, uh, the National Film Board of Canada and it was a 24 minute short. Does anyone out there know this, this movie? Yeah? Um, and it's called The Rail Rotter and it's essentially a silent short. This, in a way, would almost count as his his last film that he in some way created. He was not the director. He co-directed it with someone else, but he was the one who chose to make it a silent movie to fill it with the kind of gags that he used to do in his own silent movies. And in The Rail Rotter, the idea is that there's sort of a touristic promotion of Canada, and he gets in an old-fashioned rail car, one of those hand cars, you know, and uh, it begins in Halifax, it ends in, I believe, Vancouver, and he just crosses the entire nation, the entire top of the continent, uh, getting into various scrapes, some of which recall some gags from his silent films, some of which play on the landscape around him. And, uh, and it's, it's a really beautiful, funny, and strange kind of movie to see him all of those years later, 50 years later or so, uh, back in the world of thinking up silent gags. So part of my endorsement is to watch The Rail Router, which you can watch on the National Film Board of Canada website, and we'll link to it on our show page. And there's also, I don't know if people who know The Rail Router know this, but there's a one-hour-long documentary about the making of this short 
called Buster Keaton Rides Again that you can also find online, and we'll link to that. And that's really, really wonderful just as a, it's a sound film, and it, it's just wonderful as a document of his life. So you see he and his wife kind of camping out on the road as they're making this movie. They're taking a regular rail car, you know, alongside, and then shooting during the day in this, this little hand car thing. And you get to see him just hanging out, smoking cigarettes, telling jokes, playing the ukulele and singing old vaudeville songs. And, uh, it's just a really wonderful portrait of Buster Keaton late in his life. So, um, Buster Keaton rides again and the rail rotter together. Those are my, my endorsement for Canada. That's fantastic. <laughs> Julia Turner, what do you got? Uh, well, like Dana, I like to recommend something from our host country. And unlike Dana, I have no, uh, no illusions that you guys won't already know this. But, um, since as expressed, Joni Mitchell, though revered, is, is too frighteningly uh, close to the bone to me, for me, um, my most sentimentally felt about Canadian song is the song Scott Pilgrim by the band Plum Tree. Not from Toronto, but from Canada. Only a smattering of applause. Either you don't like the song or you don't know it. I don't know. Um, but I, my husband and I played the song in our wedding. It was our recessional. We uh, walked out to the lyrics, I've liked you for the longest time. And it is a great, a great song of this great nation. So thank you all for that. All right. Well, continuing with the theme, the Canadian band All Vays. <laughs> Otherwise pronounced as always, but uh, I thought I'd add a little cheek. They have a new record out. Uh, they formed in Toronto, as you seem to know, in 2011. Uh, and the new record is Sue Fucking Perb, as I wrote here earlier this evening. It's called <laughs> Anti-Socialites. I don't know if you've heard it yet. It's really freaking good. And what's amazing is the debut record was so good. You were like, these guys are freaking awesome. Like, what a great, you know, reverby, nostalgia-laden, jangle rock outfit they they popped fully formed onto the scene and they have made a better record which i really didn't think was possible i mean no slight on the first one but the everything about it from the writing to the production to the singing everything has just gone up a notch it is a terrific rock and roll record and it's canadian um and then uh, i would like to say that there are a, a, a f very few uh, human beings who carry in their person, in their bearing, the tradition of the Enlightenment. And one of them is the Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank we you so much We have an audience who I gives mean, a round of applause for philosophers. I, I love that so we much. We should give live shows at libraries all the time. <laughs> it's so awesome. Uh, best known for what? The book on Hegel, The Sources of the Self. The, uh, he wrote an essay called The Politics of Recognition, though I may not be getting the title quite right. It seems to me as though uh, even more rare than the person who carries the Enlightenment in his day-to-day in -day being is the person who somehow managed to then take it and imbue the world with it in some uh, uh you know, a measurably positive way. And Taylor strikes me as one of those people. And um, anyway, so find yourself some Charles Taylor to read. He wrote a lot of what he wrote or essay in essay form. Uh, important things that he wrote were in essay form. You don't like the sources of the self is a plinth, but you don't have to. Um, you don't have to start there, but uh, you'd be rewarded even if you did. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. And thank you, Toronto. We had a fucking awesome time. <laughs> All right, I, 
I almost always forget to include the show's credits during in my live show script, and I did again, but I wrote them out. But a combination of my tortured scrawl and my um, my decreasing eyesight, I'll see if I can do it. But if I can't, you can chime in. Um, all right, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or post on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Do any of these words ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Uh, is, uh, is, that is his name, Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply Network. You can find our show, entire roster of like-minded and unlike-minded shows at panoply.fm. I would be completely remiss if I didn't give huge thanks to Gregory McCormick and the Toronto uh, Public Library and um, uh, Reference Library for hosting us tonight. And many thanks to Slate Events uh, uh, guru, wonderful Kirsten Holtz, and also to Natalie Kurtz here at the library who made everything very Thank smooth. You. We had thanks, a guys. fucking awesome time. Thank you very, very much. Thanks, Ronna.